you can have half the clients and double the revenue if you're more aggressive with like the cadence you increase your prices and by how much. But most creative people, they just follow arbitrary rules that perhaps somebody else has set for them or they've set for themselves. And then they struggle then to kind of step outside of those rules, that box which they've created for themselves. You do need to design a business, but you've also got to build a business which is scalable and understand the numbers. I think that's super important. I don't think enough people put enough time into getting down to the nitty gritty of designing a business by numbers. What do you wish you knew when you were running that agency before you started going to those seminars and reading those books? What are three things you wish you knew? The first one is about... Welcome to the Creative Courage podcast. I'm your host, Matt Essam. And in this episode, we are going to be talking to Robin Waite. Robin is a public speaker, a best-selling author, and a business coach. And Robin actually works with us on our program, coaches and mentors some of our clients, specifically around product and pricing. So how to productize your services, how to charge more. This is a really interesting episode because I know Robin personally. We dug down a little bit into his background where for more than 10 years, he ran his own design studio. And we talk about the transition that happened in his mind from somebody who felt like they didn't really need any help or didn't really want any help to the person who was going to lots of seminars, reading business books and learning how to run a successful business. So in this episode, we dive into the mindset behind that, but also some specific tactics and specific things around charging more money, raising your rates, positioning yourself in the market, and ultimately taking your business to the next level. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you find it valuable, then don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Robin Waite, welcome to the Creative Courage podcast. Good to be here, Matt. It's been a long time coming. It has been a long time coming. We've been promising this for a while. I'm glad that we finally managed to have this conversation. So we've known each other for a a few years now, just for some context. So there's lots of stuff that I want to talk to you about today. But why don't we kick off with just a really simple question. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word courage? Yeah, good question. And obviously a lot of context there, given the the nature of the podcast. But um, yeah, courage for me is about, I think most human beings, when they want to achieve something with their life, they look at their future and the thing which they want to achieve and which will immediately sort of elicit some emotions or some feelings inside them. And often there will be something there which will stop them from taking action towards achieving the thing which they want to which they want to do. And courage for me is being able to identify what that first little next step is towards achieving that goal and then taking it and not being afraid of the consequences of that. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier on today, actually, and um, she had a huge moment, came out of corporate and had a big moment about setting up her own business. Again, sort of in the creative space. And the thing which stopped her was worrying about, for example, what her colleagues in her old workplace were going to think of her when she launched her business. And she froze up. And for several weeks, she just didn't take any action whatsoever. And then eventually she came to realise, well... She would rather just know either way whether they would support her or not. And when she had that moment of realisation, she just went went and did it anyway. And and actually the thing, you know, that she was most afraid of, her, her old colleagues, yeah, a couple of them were a bit toxic and did leave some sort of negative comments and things like that. But ultimately she knew then where she stood with them. 
But equally, she also then knew where she stood with her startup and what the first steps were going to be in terms of like creating the success she wanted. And lo and behold, literally within the first week of her taking that first step, having the courage to take that first step, she enrolled her first client. Okay, amazing. So you've obviously worked with hundreds of business owners over the last however many years, and you also ran your own agency and you sold that agency. In your experience, what are the main things that prevent people from taking that first step? The obvious fears around fear of failure and fear of rejection. So it takes quite a lot of, again, comes back to courage, takes quite a lot of courage to come up with a new idea for a product or service and figure out how much value it's going to bring to the world, what type of clients it's going to be the best fit for. And this is somebody's baby that they've kind of probably had swimming, swirling around in their head for quite a long period of time before they then finally present it to the world. And humans naturally like to be liked. You know, we're pack animals at the end of the day. So we wouldn't want to put our baby out into the universe and then for everybody to look at it and go, oh God, your baby's a bit ugly, isn't it? You know, we don't, we don't like that kind of rejection, right? So it's perfectly natural for people who are just starting out in business to have that kind of a fear, for their baby not to be judged, you know, and ultimately they're very attached to their, their business and their idea. So that it, to a certain extent, the business owner is, is their business, that they are their idea. So if somebody judges their idea or their product or their service which they're selling and perhaps maybe they say no to it and they can't see the value in it they're going to take that as a personal rejection and one of the first steps to start to sort of overcome that that fear of rejection is just to realize that there's only two things that can ever really go wrong in business right it's very different to the plains of Africa where you've got to walk 10 miles down to the river to get your water every day and you could literally be eaten by hippos or lions or bitten by a snake or something like that. There's like genuine things to be afraid of. But ultimately in business, there's only two real things that can go wrong. One, you could either not make enough money or lose some money. And the second thing which could go wrong is you might look a bit dumb. And the reality is that neither of those two things are ultimately, they're not life-threatening, that's for sure. And they can also be, you, you can come back from it. You can go back and get gainful employment and uh, you know, a job and earn some money again. Plenty of jobs out there. Or if you look a bit stupid, well, you probably don't ever have to speak to those people again, right? So those two things can be overcome very easily. But yeah, fear of rejection and fear of failure are the two biggest sort of causes for people stagnating and actually not taking action in their business. Yeah. And you mentioned in that about specifically around startups and people that maybe haven't put their idea out into the world yet but what about for more established businesses so take yourself back to a time when you had been how long did you run your agency for just remind me 12 years so 2004 to 2016 okay so in the 10th year you were in business what were the things that you knew were gonna grow your agency but you just weren't doing well, one of the first ones, I've got a very vivid recollection of this. The first one was taking on clients that I knew I shouldn't be taking on. And I had a moment of truth, the moment of clarity when it all sort of came to fruition. And I was like, ah, oh, the penny dropped entirely. This guy walked into my office and I'd been running the agency up until that point of kind of more taking orders. So people would come into my office They'd want a website or some branding done. I'd ask them a few questions, but it wasn't necessarily based on the value proposition or what impact it would have on their business. I'd be like, oh, so you want a website? How many pages do you want? You know, just go through all the standard sort of questions and then essentially take their order. And one day this guy walked in 
And over that over those ten years, I'd slowly start to get more interested in personal development, self development. I was reading a lot of business books, and you know we've got mutual connection in Dan Priestley, for example. I you know studied entrepreneur revolution and key personal influence, and so I was really starting to sort of see the value in myself. And this guy walks in. And he's like, Robin, I've heard great things about, you know, the websites you build. I want you to build me a website. So I started asking questions about, well, okay, well, why do you want to do that? What's the purpose behind you building a website? So he ran a local mechanics doing MOTs on servicing on cars and things like that. And he said, "Um, I'm coming up for retirement in two years. I want to double the size of my business so that I can sell it. And I remember I said, well... I don't think just a website is going to be the thing that's going to double your revenue. I think you need a full, more of a marketing strategy. Your branding's a bit old school. I don't think as it stands at the moment, probably somebody wants to buy it in its current state, but we could, let's run the numbers and see where we end up. And I got really excited. So I started whiteboarding a load of ideas and going through the numbers with this business and talking about average customer lifetime value, average spend per customer on their first order and how often the repeat business, how often do they come back? And I kid you not, Matt, he put his hand up to me in my face and he went, no, no, Robin, I just want you to build me a website. And I was like, screw you, <laughs> literally. And I, I had, I'd written the first book. That's not a shameless plug for the book, but I'd written the first book. And I remember I gave him a copy of it and I said, I don't, and I might have sworn, I'm not going to swear now, but um, I said, I don't care what you do with this book, whether you choose to read it, which will do you some, give you some, you know, be some benefit in there for you doing that, or you choose to use it as a coffee coaster, but I don't want to see you again. Can you leave my office? And I kicked him out. And probably for the first 10 years that came before that, I don't think I ever would have had the confidence to say, like me, say no to a customer because I'd just taken orders up until that point. And it was a real pivotal moment when I realised that I'm the one in control here of my own business and without going too woo-woo, the destiny of my business. If I want to be successful, I need to start asking of the world, what type of clients do I want to be working with? And how do I want to be working with them? And, And obviously, you know, $60 million question was, how much do I want to be compensated for delivering that great work to those clients? Hmm. What was it that gave you the courage to kick that guy out of the office? We were in a situation where the business had kind of evolved to a certain point. So I productized the branding side of the business. So we'd evolved like a very laborious logo design process and distilled it down into a one day branding workshop. As a result of that sort of innovation, we'd been able to dramatically increase our prices. And it was kind of just in the sort of the the run up to that conversation, you know, three or four months in the run up to that conversation, I'd actually sold several of these workshops and probably made more money in a much easier fashion than I had done at any other point in the agency. So I think the critical things for me, I guess we had a bit of a financial safety net, so I wasn't necessarily dependent. I didn't need more clients at that point. I could afford to not take those clients on, which I guess made that decision of saying no to him that much easier. But I think also because we kind of started to specialize in this one particular area of the business, the branding and logo design side of things, and I could see the value in it. And also other people were noticing it. So I was getting recognized for it. We won a couple of awards for the logo design process. We won an award for one of our clients' brands that we'd redesigned. I was getting invited to come and speak on podcasts and other like other platforms about this logo design process because it was very innovative at that particular point in time. Pretty much every single one of our competitors was doing sort of hourly rate or day rate type 
design work, you know, 50 pounds an hour, 80 pounds an hour. And we were charging three times that. And so I was quite novel to be around at that point. And so I think it was kind of just fortuitous that I had all of these things aligning in one side of the business. But in that particular moment, I just remember the words rattling around in my brain. You're better than this, Robin. You don't have to work with this client. If this is the way that he's going to treat you now, what's he going to be like several months down the road when maybe if the if something went wrong with the website, for example, and he's not happy? If he's annoyed and frustrated at me now, how is he going to be like when he's actually given me money? And I was like, to me, that just felt like too much of a risk at that point. I just It was just an easy decision at that point just to say no. Yeah. And that's an interesting point because what I heard there was essentially the balance of pain and pleasure was quite obvious and it was quite easy. It was way more painful to say yes because you didn't need to say yes and there was loads of potential risk. So that's quite an easy decision for you. But I think we know, having coached hundreds of agency owners, that's not always the case. And so what would have happened, do you think, if you didn't have that financial buffer and you didn't have all those external things that were pointing to that being the right decision? Mm. So probably before that sort of moment, there were times when ultimately we did take on clients, for want of a better phrase, to service our own needs. We took on the clients because we needed the money. And this, it created problems in the business. You know, that again, I was fortunate. We'd kind of grown a small team. So there was me and three other people in the business. And I did have a business partner up until about year 10 as well. He eventually sort of left the business. And then I had sort of free reign to run the business as I wanted to. But yeah, there were times when we took on clients that perhaps we shouldn't have done. And we ended up creating bottlenecks where maybe the projects ended up being more complicated than we'd anticipated at sort of proposal stage. All that leads to is a frustration on our side because it's by virtue of the fact you probably find this as well. Like I see a lot of creative businesses who will ultimately end up blaming the client which is certainly isn't the right way around to do things. And in the moment, before I know what I know now, that's what we used to do in our agency days. Oh, the client didn't deliver the copy on time. The client didn't come back to us to sign off on the composites for that logo. Well, the client didn't. We'd always end up finding ourselves like blaming the client. The reality was, though, that I don't think we sort of qualified some clients well enough. And I don't think we'd built certain processes and systems around the delivery side of things. So we take on really complicated projects and then essentially just wing it and hope that it kind of worked out in the end. When I finally, the penny dropped around sort of the one-day branding workshops and we built a seven-step process around it and we everybody had their roles and responsibilities in, in who was going to deliver which part of that, you know, which one of the seven steps, for example. And we identified at what times, so we set a timeline out for the client and what time you know, each one of those seven steps was going to be delivered. And we applied the same principles to the website projects, which we took on at that point. And again, it halved the development time. I was like, oh, it couldn't possibly make that big a difference to the web projects because they're big and complex and it was mostly bespoke. But no, we still realised there was a process to be followed with the websites and, you know, dramatically reduced the amount of time it took to deliver. So of course that resulted in, you know, less problems from our side and also happier clients on the other side because they were getting their projects as they saw it, as they wanted it and on time. Mm. Okay. In that case, what advice would you give to somebody who maybe doesn't have the assets and the external circumstance that you just described? Because you said that it just leads to the business not being in a good place if you say yes to those clients. You said that in the past you said yes to those clients, then kind of established that the reason you were able to say no was because you had all this other stuff in place. So there's going to be people listening to this, I know for a fact, that know they should be saying no or shouldn't be saying yes 
but they still are. And the fear is like a dance in their head. It's fear of, well, I know this client's going to be a pain in the ass, but at least they're going to give us some money and we'll be able to pay the bills for the next month or, or whatever. So like, can you speak to that for a minute? There's ways that people think that a creative business should be run. And creative business owners seem to kind of, they create these rules for themselves. And I don't quite understand, like know where they get these sort of rules from, which person out there is sort of making up all these rules for creative agencies. And then they all seem to just follow suit. So a really simple example of this, Matt, is around how and when to raise your prices as a creative agency, for example. And you probably come, well, we come across this all the time in, in creative life. The first rule which they create for themselves is, well, I can only put my prices up once a year. Like, which idiot made that rule up, mm. right? Because if there's a lot of demand, so loads of people want whatever service it is that you're selling, most business owners understand basic sort of supply and demand principles, right? So you can put your prices up if there's lots of demand three times a year, six times a year, 12 times a year. You do it once a week if you want to. If somebody were to buy something for $10,000 today, you could sell it to somebody else for $15,000 tomorrow because it's about the agreement between those two or three individual parties and if there's product market fit and they see the value in it, you can adjust your prices sort of, you know, as and when you want to. The second rule, I think, which people then kind of make up is by how much could they increase their prices? So I'm only going to put my price up once a year and I'm only going to do it by 10%. And it's like, again, you've just naturally, as a business owner, you've just capped your earnings potential. It means that following year, you're probably not going to increase your revenue by more than 10%. I don't know about you, but the goal in business isn't to collect as many clients as you possibly can, because ultimately, if you keep your prices low, you're just going to have to constantly enroll clients, constantly enroll clients, and never feel like you can say no to those clients because you think that's the only way to grow your revenue. Whereas if actually, if you've realized that you've undersold, undervalued your product or service in the first place, and maybe actually we don't just go for 10%, we just actually double or triple our prices, you can make massive ground up in terms of your achieving your revenue goals and dramatically increasing the profit. You can have half the clients and double the revenue if you're more aggressive with like the cadence you increase your prices and by how much. But most creative people, they just follow arbitrary rules that perhaps somebody else has set for them or they've set for themselves. And then they they struggle then to kind of step outside of those, you know, those rules, that box which they've created for themselves. Yeah, I think rules definitely play a big part in it. But I think another part of it is also people saying, that's okay. You're like, I get the concept, Rob, you could increase your prices. But what if people say no? Or what if people tell us we're too expensive? And then all of a sudden, we're left with no clients? Good. Let me ask you, Matt, it'd be interesting to get your opinion on this, actually. It's, it's a good thing when people say no. But what would you say is a, a good conversion rate for a creative agency? 50%. Mm, yeah, I'd loosely agree with that. I'd probably even go slightly less than that. I'd probably even say maybe one in five to one in three people. So like 20 to 35%. Mm -hmm. Think about it this way. Like if your conversion rate is really high, and again, I see a lot of creative business owners who are, or creative agency owners who are, oh, look at me, I'm amazing at sales. I've got a 90% conversion rate. But imagine it's like the rev limiter on a car. So like it's bouncing off the red, right? Ba -ba 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 -ba. It's operating at 100%, you know, conversion rate. Ba -ba 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 -ba. No matter how much harder you try to make that go further, you can't do it because that, if you try and rev that engine faster than that, it's just going to, it'll shoot a piston and it'll, it'll explode or seize, right? A much better way to run a business is at like operating at about 2,000 RPM, 
you know, plodding along down a motorway, 70 miles an hour, blah, 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 you know, just, just rumbling along the road. It's nice and steady. Oh, we've got to overtake somebody, we'll drop the gear down, we'll just, you know, accelerate a little bit, we'll get past that car and then, boom, we'll just drop back down again. We've, there's feedback that can go either way when you've got a lower conversion rate. So my belief is you want to be turning away more clients than you're taking on. Hmm. Okay. And speak to that as somebody who had a small team of three people. Like if Rob today had come up to tell Rob, however many years ago you sold that agency and said, you know what, you should be turning away more people. You should be doing more of that. Maybe before you'd kind of got this productized brand system down and before you had lots of opportunity, if someone had told you that advice, what would have been your reaction to that? Probably I'd have laughed at them and just said, well, how am I going to, you know, that means I need to, well, I'm a mathematician, Matt. So I'd have gone to, well, if I've got fewer clients and I've got to pay for these people, I need to make more money. So I'm going to have to increase my prices. But I think back then, if I'm honest, I didn't know back then what I know now about pricing and sales and things like that. So so it's a good good question, actually. I find it really hard to answer that. I think the way that my agency sort of played out, you know, it's played out the way that it has. And thankfully, I discovered what I knew about pricing. And I discovered it very quickly. There was a couple of little things which we did find. So we did get into some situations whereby we were squeezed each month. And when we took on, there was one year where we took on three apprentices. And obviously that made our salary bill quite quite expensive for us at the time. And I noticed that we were getting a lot of phone calls and inquiries from existing clients saying, or oh, if you've got five minutes, could you do this update? Or if you've got, could you just add this page onto your website? Or could we just have this done? And um, my team weren't tracking that through and there was one particular month where everything was really tight and I just went through literally penny pinching through my entire sort of profit and loss trying to save a bit here and make a bit there and I discovered we had about three thousand pounds a month's worth of just have you got five minutes can you just do this little update that we hadn't billed clients for that our team just assumed that they just hadn't thought to tell us, tell me about it, that I needed to raise an invoice for it. And they just did the work anyway. And the best thing about that was that it was about managing the client's expectations at that point, actually. So if we had a client, say, that gave us 10 of those requests in a month, like 10 of the, you got five minutes, could you just do this? What we would do is we put in a minimum charge every time they called, like a plumber, like a call-out charge, right? And the clients soon realised that it was much better, much more efficient if they made a list of the 10 things and then gave them all together to us at the end of the month as one list. And then we would spend probably less time because we didn't have to manage 10 things. We had 10 things to manage as a batch. And that worked out really well. And then when clients, when we managed clients' expectations that way, we were then better equipped to have conversations with them about things like support and care plans. So, well, we've noticed you're booking five hours every month in extras. Well, why don't you sign up to this direct debit and we'll do like an all-you-can-eat thing, but up to about five hours worth of updates. And we got to a point whereby we then had a really nice subset of clients with recurring sort of regular recurring revenue coming in on top of the project fees. And that probably saved our bacon that year. It was it was those extra little bits, the five minutes here, the 20 minutes there, that made up that extra bit of revenue way back when. Probably knowing what I know now, though, I would have tackled that ever so slightly differently. So I'd have managed the expectation up front on what happens with extras and got them signed up to a care plan there and then, rather than wait and, and be reactive. And probably I would have thought a little bit harder about this, the scale of the projects that we were taking on. So we were doing a lot of bespoke and custom work and actually... You know, again, coming back to the productization sort of piece, when I realized that we worked on smaller projects that lots of people wanted, so little five-page brochure-style websites, they were easy and effortless compared to the big custom projects, but they actually produced much better relative customer lifetime value. For example, if we did a a 10K project, we might only make 50 to 100 pounds a month in terms of a care plan. 
But if we did a little brochure-style website and charged £1,000 for it, we would still be able to charge £50 to £100 for a care plan because of the way we'd structured our business. And so we realised if we did 10 little websites all making similar amounts of, you know, in terms of the care plans, our customer lifetime value just exploded. And we ended up in, uh, having about 120 clients in the end on those care plans, just 10K a month, just churning over just nicely, covered all the costs. And then we could focus on sort of the innovations and perhaps focusing on some bigger projects at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. I guess I want to make sure that we're not getting too strategic and tactical here, because I think what's easy to do as coaches and as people that have run agencies is take these kind of like cookie cutter strategies and apply them to everything. Yeah. And I think what you share is super valuable and the strategies that you talk about and that you teach, I've seen firsthand literally transform people's businesses. The problem with that and what we're talking about here is this is a podcast so people can't answer, ask questions and can't get coached. Yeah. And so I'm trying to dig down what I'm trying to do ultimately with this is like put myself in either my shoes or my client's shoes. And we're lucky enough to like have enough conversations on a weekly basis to hear what's coming up for people. Yeah. But obviously you're talking to a much wider variety of clients from a coaching perspective than I am. And so I'm trying to get to the point where we're actually tackling the fears the frustrations, the limiting beliefs, the things that are actually holding people back from doing that. Because I think there's one thing listening to a podcast, and I get this with like Alex Hormozzi's stuff. He's just put out so much value. Like he's literally put out the playbook for lead generation, the playbook for creating offers. Well, why now, like three months later from $100 million leads and two years later from $100 million offers, why doesn't everyone have these like incredible businesses? And the point I think is like, it's logical. It makes sense. We understand it logically the same way we understand that going to the gym logically is healthy and not eating shit food is healthy. Like Mm. it's not actually that complicated, but people still aren't doing it. And so without like getting deep into some kind of like psychology around childhood trauma and stuff like that, what do you know? Because your brand is all about being fearless. What do you know about being in that situation where you feel like maybe you don't have enough clients or you just have enough clients and someone comes to you and says, right, Rob, I know you've only got 10 clients and you really feel like you need 15, but you need to double your prices now. Mm. Talk me through that, what's going on in your head when someone tells you that before you know what you know now. Yeah, so what came up for me as you were kind of explaining that, and I, I know this is how I behaved in my agency days, I had Robin's filter on. I was like, it was me versus the world. I was like, I'm going to build my agency and do it my way. And I don't think it was necessarily like an ego thing. And you're welcome to regress me to my childhood, Matt, because I, I know where that stems from as well, actually. That feeling of, of me building something great, but on my own, is me sticking my fingers up to my parents. Because I'll be honest, I had quite a privileged upbringing. I don't mind sharing it. I went to a private school. I'm clearly white, raised in middle England. You know, I had a lot of privilege and great opportunities handed to me in my upbringing. But also my parents reminded me of that an awful lot, Mm. how I should be so grateful. And I know as I was sort of in my latter sort of teenage years, sort of 16, 17, 18, when I went into senior school and sixth form specifically, 
And I started to notice, ah, I've got freedom here to be Robin and do what Robin wants to do. Screw you, mum and dad. I'm now just going to go and do my... They wanted me to go to university, right? And follow the, the normal sort of path. And I was the first person in my family sort of tree to go to university and things like that. And um, I was like, no, no, I'm not doing it. I'm going to rebel and I'm just going to go and create something great and I'm going to do it all on my own. <laughs> So that immediately I had this filter where, as you were saying that, I'm like, you can tell me I need to double my prices, Matt, but if I don't believe it, if I don't see that as being the model that my belief, my mental model for solving that problem, it doesn't matter how much you tell me or how much evidence you give me, I'm just going to go and do it my way anyway. So basically you are uncoachable. At that particular point in time, yes. It took me a very long time to yeah. start to work with mentors and and I had to choose... On my own terms, when I started reading books, listening to audiobooks, going to business events and started to pay attention to what other people were saying. I tell you what, this was one of the biggest mistakes I made. I don't share this with many people. It's not really that deep or dark, but I did get, end up getting a degree. I went to university at the same time as working in my first job. It was in the run up to starting the agency. But when I finished uni, I was like, right. I'm done with books, never have to read another book again in my life. Not gonna, I don't have to learn anything else. I know everything. So there was a bit of arrogance, I think, in leaving uni in, set, in those early years of the business. And then, I don't know, I didn't have like any, any sort of, there wasn't any shocks which kind of brought me back down to earth with any kind of a bump. But it was just that, I think it's just like a natural sort of, you go through different like ages of maturity, I guess. And you just you go, oh, actually, I'm not that special. And maybe my business isn't as successful as I want it to be or designed it to be. And well, maybe I should ask for some help. And it's like a really, it was a slow process for me. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And that's a big one, actually. So one of the chapters that I'm thinking about in my book is the courage to ask for help, because I think for the more mature agency owners that we deal with, both in age, like for the founder, but also age of the business, it's very difficult for them to put their hands up and say, do you know what? I haven't actually got all this shit figured out because sometimes they've won awards. They've got very prestigious clients. They've got a team of people. It's pretty like it takes a lot of courage and vulnerability to say, actually, I would like someone to come along and, and help me with this. So like, do you remember the point when that started to happen to you? Yeah, the first mentor I had was through one of the government schemes. It was like, so the equivalent of it, they've got something called Help to Grow Now in the UK, which is a fantastic scheme. But So we went through the equivalent of it, but this is way, you know, trying to think now, probably about 12, 13, 14 years ago. And the guy came in and he did sort of business model canvas, business model on a page type thing. Before we get to that point, what was the point where you went, I'm actually going to sign up for this thing and go to this thing? Because you went from the phase of, I don't need to read a book again. No one can teach me anything. I'm going to do things my way to maybe I don't need to go to this government seminar thing to learn how to run a business. So like, what was the turning point for you? I had a business partner and I would probably say it was more his influence. He kind of fought his corner for us to get some outside help. And I think I kind of reluctantly agreed to it. So I don't think I even had that moment of realisation myself. I kind of had it forced upon me. I was fortunate that my business partner was, he was older than me. You know, his kids are 10 years older than my kids. You know, I guess he had more responsibilities than me. So it kind of made sense for him rather than running this business by the seat of our pants. Actually, let's 
find somebody who can help us bring some organisation to it. So I, I think I had my hand behind my back, Matt, as opposed to me actually deciding, oh, I need to go for this thing. I, I accept it. I put my hands up. I'm, I'm not very good at this business, Lark. I need some help. I don't think I actually had that moment. Somebody yeah. had it for me. And I think that's actually interesting because I think that is an experience for a few people that we've worked with in the past. And I think one of the battles often is if you have got a business partner that you feel isn't as open to getting help or getting support as you are, it can be quite difficult to convince them of that. So just talk us through when you kind of let's, let's just be extreme and say when you got dragged to this event, what did you see? What did you hear? What was your experience that made you realize A, that you needed help, but then B, I'd also love after that to talk about the courage to then put your hands up and admit it. Mm. So, I mean, my memories are kind of that process of pro- a bit vague. I mean, it's long, a long time ago, Matt, but I do remember being slightly bored by the process. I'm not going to lie. And that I found it very frustrating. I found it very slow. I didn't find it particularly innovative. The one thing which it did highlight to me, though, was that we clearly didn't have any processes around sales. We didn't get a, like a sales framework at that point, but I was like, essentially it was highlighted that I, and I was the one who was doing a lot of the business development. So I was going out doing the BNI networking meetings. I was going out meeting prospects, sitting in the meetings, doing proposals and things like that. But we didn't have a a process behind that. And the highlight for me was when I think we calculated the number of proposals that we had out there. And this was part of the process that this guy took us through. So we just had a, it was a guy in a suit came into our office and he started talking about business model. And uh, he was asked us questions. And then it came to light that I had something like £224,000 worth of proposals out there in, in the ether. And in my head, I've banked 224 grand this year. I'm like, brilliant, look at me go. I'm a brilliant salesperson. And he, I remember him distinctly saying, you're not going to close any of that. And I was like, well, hold on a second. What do you, what do you mean? He's like, well, he said 90% of that 224,000 is from meetings which you had over 14 days ago. So he said, the likelihood of you closing any of those is probably lapsed now. They'll be moving on, whatever. You might as well just write them off. And he said, this is the one we should focus on. And he said, I want you to call them back now. So he, he kind of did what I do now with other people. He did that on me, called them back. Client said, oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we got the proposal. We're not sure yet whether we want to go ahead with it or not, blah, blah, blah. And the guy is in my ear saying, book a follow-up meeting, book a follow-up meeting, book a follow-up And um, I said, do you want to book a follow-up meeting? And they said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm like, that's a good idea. This guy's in my ear. He said, right, make sure it's in the next two days. Okay, are you free in the next couple of days? Yeah, great, we can come in tomorrow morning. We'll sit down, we'll discuss it, and we'll make a decision. Close the deal, and then I was like, we need a follow-up process in our sales thing. Like, the, this is the proposal thing's not working. <laughs> We just need to follow up more on our sales, right? Just really basic stuff. But I needed to see the evidence, Matt. I needed somebody to show me the errors of my ways, like practically like there and then, in order to go, oh, okay, I can see how that works now. I need to do that in my business. Mm, yeah, okay. So someone showed you what was possible by basically calling you out and using their experience. And then was that a gradual process for you or was that the turning moment where you kind of went, mm, okay, maybe we do need to get some help like... And, and actually go back to this thing or look at other mentors or? It was still a gradual process because I think um, I'd spent, you know, the best part of 25 years like growing my ego, Matt. So then I had to like, there was a bit of time required to then sort of start to not get rid of it because there's, there's that important part of my significant part of my life there. And But let's try and create a better way of doing things that can work alongside that. 
So it was a gradual process of like dialing down that ego, wanting to build something solely on my own and actually dialing up the, right, we need to just be a bit more grown up about how we're doing the business. And mm-hmm. I did, I started leaning in, into more doing sort of networking. It was around about that sort of point as well. Again, I mentioned him already, but when Dan Priestley was doing the brand accelerators, I don't know if you if you ever went to one of those, but it was the first time I'd ever gone to a, an event like that, a big grown up business event and seen what you know there were six just brilliant speakers that really inspiring speakers talk about all sorts of different areas of of their business and talking about their journeys around how they built their success and I hadn't been exposed to a lot of that I wasn't really into watching like Dragon's Den or what's the other big tv show the um oh like The Apprentice yeah The Apprentice I wasn't really into those sorts of programs and I've watched bits and pieces of them but I wasn't really into like I didn't follow any entrepreneurs or things like that and I've got these six amazing people on stage felt really inspired i went to 13 brand accelerators believe it or not it's like a dirty little secret now wow. i hope dan never watches this he'll think i'm some kind of fanboy <laughs> I am, to be fair but i went to 13 brand same speakers 13 times right but i was just so inspired by it i just was then hungry for it and just wanted more of it and sometimes i think it's just you need a little dose of something it's like a gateway drug, isn't it? Just a little dose of something like a, like a brand accelerator or a business conference or something you hear in a book or on the radio just to inspire you enough, just to get curious about it and then delve a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And I found it much easier at that point to then start applying it and being willing to like fail, like try stuff and make a mistake that I, I came to realize through a lot of the books I was reading and the content I was then starting to read that business actually is part planning But it's also majority experimentation, a bit of trial and error and and luck and happening upon something, a formula that works for you. And that that was kind of what I adopted towards the latter part of the agency days. Yeah. And what was it, do you think, that you latched onto, which made you want to keep coming back and what made you want to keep going on the journey of learning and development and trying new things? It was just the, it was the feedback loop. It was that the little drips of dopamine of trying something new or different that's come from somebody else, taking the principles, understanding them, most importantly, and then how, like figuring out how to apply it to my business as it, as it stood at that time. Like even now I geek out on the stuff around just experimenting with, you know, things in even, you know, in my my own business now experimenting around and I'm not, not suggest these aren't suggestions as, as to things that people should necessarily spend their time doing, but this is just what I enjoy doing. I understand the numbers. I understand analyzing data. My first job was a data analyst for a company and getting kind of geeky over things like you know, funnels and landing pages and analytics and seeing, you know, profit and loss and seeing, you know, oh, I did this here and then I had a successful month there. I kind of love like joining those dots together. I don't think, again, I realised that probably back during the time period we're talking about, you know, in the agency days necessarily, but that was a major part of it was just getting involved and enjoying the problem, figuring out how to apply it and solve it, you know, my own business, launching it and then seeing some kind of a result or outcome, good or bad, didn't really care, but you can push something here and it moves something over there. I found quite exciting. Mm. Which is kind of similar in a weird way to web development, isn't it? Very much so. Web development's all about like problem solving. It's all, I mean, coding has changed a lot in the 19 years I've been sort of you know done it but it that's all about you know writing if this then that statements and all of the different permutations and combinations of output that come out of making something turn from code and appear in, in a screen in a visual format it was always about solving problems again didn't realize early in my agency days that 
like why I was building those websites for people. I thought I was just designing a nice website. And they, our websites look good. They're functional. were found on search engines. I didn't join the dots for probably a good six, seven, eight years into my agency of going seven layers deep into the client's problem. Oh, you want a website? Why is that? Well, because we want to be found on Google. Why is that? Because we want to generate some leads. Why is that? But, you know, the story. And then we end up at the, well, actually, it's because we want to make more money. <laughs> You know, we want the business mm. to be more profitable and we want the scientific approach to how we're generating leads as opposed to just hoping that they show up. So again, that was an enlightening moment where I was like, I started having more of those conversations with clients and then taking that logic back and applying it to my own business as well. So I was kind of, in a sense, I was doing a bit of coaching work with clients back then and coaching myself at, at the same time to, you know, grow my own business. Yeah, Absolutely let's just talk about the experimentation bit for a second because i think a it's really important but b a lot of people struggle with it so what is the belief you have or the story you have around experimentation that allows you to be detached from the outcome so it kind of goes back to something which i said at the start is that the two things that could go wrong you could look a bit stupid or lose a bit of money where people struggle with this is where they struggle with having the ability to experiment and the desire to experiment and follow through with it is because I see so many agencies that are very much locked into short-term thinking. And so what I mean there is it's around scarcity mindset. We've got 15K salary bill, which we've got to pay by the end of the month. We've got to get projects in now. Don't care how we do it. Let's sell, get out there and sell something. And Probably inevitably what happens within that, because that short term, it's like the fear reflex. Fear helps blood drain from your brain and go into your your limbs, your legs and your heart so that you can run away from something or fight it or you're just so petrified that you freeze. So when you're operating from, and scarcity has that same reflex, we can't see into the future what the second and third order consequences of those decisions are going to be. So, right, let's go and get some money we need 15k in now to pay those bills. What we didn't calculate was the cost of getting that 15k. So we might have 15k in cash, but in then doing that project and tying our team up for a month, is that going to have prevented us from maybe signing a deal that was worth 50k or 100k? In doing that job to get that 15k in, is it actually ultimately going to lose us money because the 15k just covers salary, it doesn't cover any overheads or marketing costs or director's remuneration or, you know, there's no profit. So where are the dividends going to come from? So a lot of agency owners think very short term and struggle to see, and it's not just agency owners, it's a human being thing. We struggle to see the second, third and fourth order, the longer term consequences of our decisions, mostly because it's a survival instinct. We've just got to deal with the situation now and get ourselves out of this problem in whatever way we possibly can do. I think a lot of people forget that we are you know, human beings have evolved over hundreds of millions of years. And if we just slowed things down a little bit, because there aren't saber-toothed tigers coming to eat us, and even just sleeping on a decision for 24 hours, normally we end up making better, more informed decisions. And it's building a business based on those foundations of long-term thinking and suffering a short-term pain, right? We're going to say no to that 15K thing now. And okay, bit of hope bit of luck, bit of judgment, but could we end up being better off in the long term? Mm, okay. And are there any strategies or principles that you teach that allow people to do that consistently? Well, I, I have one way, Matt. I don't know how constructive it is to necessarily share on here. So for example, when it comes to like the pricing side of things, so people are like, well, I can't charge that. So people won't pay that. So I can't quite, you know, 
short-term thinking, I don't want people to say no to me. So what I do on the from a pricing perspective is, imagine, Matt, mm-hmm. that there's a product or service that you, you've you been dreaming about selling. You haven't sold one yet, but you've been dreaming about selling it. And maybe the value of it is possibly five to 10 times the value. This could even be a coaching product, Matt, if you're hoping to sort of sharing, you know, the inner workings of your business here. But maybe there's a, a this product or service that you're thinking of is five to 10 times the price of your current most expensive offer. So mm. have you got something in mind? Yeah. Okay. To give me a quick intro. What What is it and how much would you sell it for? So it's a very much done with you product where I actually come and work sort of in the business. So really like listening to sales calls, kind of being in the trenches with that business partner and almost acting like a non-executive director. Okay, cool. And price-wise, have you thought about what you might like to charge for that? Yeah, it would have to be at least 10K a month. At least 10K a month for how many months? I would say ideally for the year. For the year. Okay, so it's 120K yeah. package. Okay. Yeah. For one, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not buttering you up here, Matt, but I know, I know the value of having somebody like you that deeply entrenched in my business, right? I would say that 120K is possibly too cheap. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Is there a world where the future version of Matt is maybe charging... I don't know, 250K for this 12-month coaching program? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Could you charge that today? I could try. Could try. But the slight hesitation, the smile, the kind of tells me that you're a bit, little bit hesitant, okay? But that, so there's a but yeah. you said 120K, so you're comfortable that you could sell a 120K package now? Yeah. Okay, so you're more confident, more bullish about that. So the thing is about when it comes to, like, for example, making a decision about This specific decision is about pricing, but you can apply similar principles to most decisions that people make. Most people see decisions as being binary. So in pricing terms, it's either too cheap or too expensive. I'm in or out, it's a yes or a no. And we, all sorts of things that are happening here without going too deep into it, but as our own projections, our own money mindset, our own internal value systems and beliefs, we're also projecting what we think the other person on the other side is going to be thinking in terms of their money mindset, their values, their beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. But if we think about Rather than it being binary here, let's try and make as many decisions as we can with an element of bandwidth. So in your example here, you said, well, 250 maybe one day in the future, but not today. But And at the other end of the spectrum, we've got 120K, and you're quite bullish about that. So rather than one, of, one or other of those being too cheap or too expensive, yes, no, I'm in or out, we've actually got bandwidth here of 130,000 different numbers, okay, between 120 and 250. So... But there's also like two different sides to this. There is the intellectual side of figuring out how much we're we going to charge for something or how do we make this decision, whatever the decision is. There's also the emotional side of it, just like what sits in here. I also know that most people undervalue themselves when they break things down intellectually. Most agency owners that you work with, that I work, we work with collectively together, we know that they under, undervalue and undersell themselves, okay? So I'm going to say some numbers... I know you've got a good poker face. I know you know where I'm going with this, but I'm going to say some numbers and we're going to try and figure out where Matt's subconscious starts to come to life, okay? So we're going to start at 120, 130, 140, 150. We're going to make a jump, 175, 180, 190, 200. There you go. Your, Your poker face actually went the other way. You were trying not to have a poker face 
And then you went all serious when I went from 190 to 200. So actually, the, the sweet spot here for you, just around about your comfort zone, just outside it, it's probably about 200K. Nearly double mm. what you originally said at 120 and were bullish about it. That's what your subconscious just told me. And I think when a lot of business owners really struggle to trust their instincts, so quite often if you just make a decision without thinking about it, your gut instinct is like 90% of the time it's right. And that 10% of the time it's wrong, you just course correct. Quite often your decision will take you close enough to the objective, but you know not quite far enough. We just course correct and we just pull ourselves back on track again. And I think that's the decisive thing is like spend less time up here, a bit more time down here, and you'll ultimately make better decisions. For those of you listening to this podcast, Robin pointed to his head first of all and his gut second. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I forgot. Forgot about the people listening on the audio. Yeah. So this comes back to the concept, I guess, of taking the first small step, right? Which we opened this podcast with the idea of is just like moving closer towards that. So now that you've anchored that in my mind, if someone comes to me and, you know, I want to charge 30K, then that actually is being compared to the exercise that we just did, right? And so it's like taking yeah. small steps in that direction, if I'm understanding this correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And also part of this process as well, Matt, is about transfer of confidence, right? You might be, this is the royal you, you might be struggling with being able to confidently make that decision and, and be courageous and, and take that first step. It's our job, right? And my job here as a coach is to, one, reflect on what you told me and on the balance of probabilities, how successful do I think that you could be with doing that? Now, I won't project that because that's not what you should do as a coach, right? But if I believe that you can do that, I need to transfer that level of confidence across into Matt or whoever's in front of you, right? Mm. I'm going to slow my articulation of this down because I want to make sure that I'm not taking this too fast that I confuse anybody with this. So one way to transfer the confidence in your now £200,000, I should say, coaching program over 12 months might be to say, well, Matt, here's a question. If you pitch that product to just one person, what do you think the likelihood is of somebody buying it? Well, it depends who it is, but yeah, probably quite low. Quite low. Okay. If you had 10 ideal clients in a room... What do you think the chances might be of you converting one or more of them? I know this is not the answer that typically you want, but if positioned right, if the offer was positioned in the right way, then I think, yeah, two or three. Yeah. Forget about how you articulate the value of the offer, just balance the probabilities, 10 people in a room. Yeah, got a, a better chance. Mm -hmm. If I put 100 people in a room with you, Matt, yeah. what do you think the chances of you converting just one of them? Is very high. Very high, right? Because... You know your experience, you know the balance of probability playing out, you know, the story in the room. There's 100 prospects. You know what you're doing from a qualification perspective. There's a lot of certainty kind of built into that process and it just becomes ultimately a numbers game. So now, now this is the transfer of confidence across to you. It's like, right, Matt, our goal is to get 100 people in a room over to you. And you'd be like, okay. well, I hope at this stage, you'd be like, cool, got, I've got this, Rob. Let's go for it. Mm. Okay, so... Just going back to that first concept, that transfer of confidence, what have you actually done there? Like if you just break that down, what was the process that you went through there? So it's essentially it's figuring out the rules of engagement. What rules of engagement is Matt playing to around how he chooses to make decisions? Is he kind of playing it safe because maybe he's not feeling particularly confident? He plays it safe 
And he doesn't take the first step because the first step's too scary because it's a room full of one person and there's a lot of jeopardy involved in it. Has he realised actually we can throw the rule book out the window and it's a matter of just playing the numbers to a point where actually we make it a really safe place for Matt to play the game where he's pretty confident he's going to win. And up until that point, you may not have thought of getting in a room full of 100 of your ideal clients. Now, I know I know Matt, I know Matt will have thought of that. But in, in terms of this role play sort of scenario we're going through here, you had a belief that said, I had to be in front of one of the right perfect clients in the perfect day in the perfect conditions and the perfect everything in order for that person to say yes. But if we put 100 people in a room, all of a sudden things don't need to be perfect anymore. Because it can be imperfect with 99 right. people, but with the right conditions with one of them, we've just increased our chances dramatically. Okay, that makes sense. So really, if we condense that down into a lesson across all business practices, what you're really saying, if I'm hearing this right, is that it's about the input and it's about the repetition. Because if you had infinite typewriters and infinite monkeys, eventually you would have the works of Shakespeare. Yeah, essentially, yes. I remember, uh, if it's, I'll share an, a personal anecdote, actually, at this point, if it's okay. When I first started my coaching practice, I was very intentional. I was like, I'm going to do six figures in my first year, and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to run events. I'm going to go to networking events. I'm going to do 12 marketing events of my own. I'm, you know, So I had this, this plan, basically, on how I was going to crush my first year, and I executed it perfectly, right? First year in business as a coach, I got 44 clients. I was probably fortunate that I had the 12 years experience as a marketeer, essentially, before I did that. And towards the latter part of, so it's like month 13 now of my coaching career, somebody came into my office, a female coach, and she said, um, not that that bears any, any necessarily any relevance, but she came into my office and she said, um, Robin, I think I'm a better coach than you, but I just don't understand why you're so much more successful than me right? I had the book at that point. It had been a bestseller, sold 15,000 copies. It had been a bestseller for, I don't know, two and a half years or something like that. Amazon bestseller was that all about. Eight. And I, I knew the volume of activity, which I'd done as well in order to get to having a successful coaching practice, another successful business. And so I said to her, I'm just curious, how many consultations did you do over, you know, recently? So I didn't, I didn't actually quantify the time. And she said, she started counting on one hand. She was like, one, two, three, four, uh, four or five. I said, well, is it four or five? And she went, oh, it was four. Okay, cool, in the last week? And she went, no, in the last year. And I said, well, there's your problem. I said, I did 125 consultations in the last 12 months. Your volume of activity is just too low. You can't be successful on just four consultations in a year. You need to up the ante and, and play a bigger game. You know, so there is a part of it. You do need to design a business, but you've also got to build a business which is scalable and understand the numbers. I think that's super important. I don't think enough people put enough time into getting down to the nitty gritty of designing a business by numbers. Mm, okay. And so if I was going to do that, where would I start? What would be the first numbers that I would need to work out? So a good example is stick with the agency sort of space. So let's say, for example, an agency has bold aspirations and they want to earn, say, a million pounds a year revenue or a million dollars a year revenue. First question I'd ask is, great, so what's your average order value? Most of them can't tell you that, which is quite telling. And they'll say, oh, well, so it's between like four and $12,000, right? And I'm like, the question was, what's the average order value? Every business should know what the average per, like customer spends with them, right? What's the average order value? Oh, $10,000. Okay, great. So you want to get to a million dollars a year revenue and your average order value is $10,000. So that means you need to deliver 100 of these products next year. And quite often they'll go, 
oh no, couldn't possibly deliver that many. That's a ridiculous number. We only delivered 20 last year and that's a real stretch and we only did 300,000. So they tell you the whole story. When you show them like a, just a very simple business model and tell them, well, you need to do X to achieve Y, they'll start to tell you why they can't do it, which is really good fun. But you can start to unpack it at that point. You can say, oh, correct. Okay, great. So what I've just heard there is that you've got the capacity for 20 clients a year. So what we need to do is find a creative way to increase the average order value from 10K to 50K. So we can work with the same number of clients, but we're much more productive with it. Deliver more value if we can, but that's that's the long and the short of it. So that that's just a very simple model. It's just called goal-focused pricing. And okay. that's where we start. That gives us a few clues around things like capacity, what size of a team might we need in order to achieve that goal and deliver that number of projects. So we can start to really interrogate other aspects of the business at that point based on that very simple like goal-focused pricing. Then it starts to get sort of a little bit more interesting at that point because you then start to get into kind of the nuances of just even things like basic profit and loss. It pains me that how few business owners and I know this is possibly getting into the nitty gritty again, Matt, so stop me if you'd rather not go here. But it pains me how few business owners, agency owners, understand turnover, gross profit, and net profit. Like they're the three simplest foundations of business accounting and finance. And most business owners are just either blissfully unaware of what those numbers are, or they'll be like, oh, I'm waiting for the numbers to come back from the accountant. Hmm. The accountant is a a freelancer who has a job to do your tax returns, like do your accounts and do tax returns, you should know how much money you made last month. That's your responsibility as a business owner. And I do have quite a hard line on this. I'm like, I mean, maybe I'm I'm too fanatical. I'm literally, I have a process in my own accounts, which means that I spend five minutes a day in zero. I know exactly what my cash position is, my tax position, VAT position, PAYE. I know every aspect of my business finances and I'm meticulous about it. So I'm probably too fanatical about it. But then you can go too far the other way where I know people who still have three years worth of returns to do. I haven't got a clue about how you know what their bank balance is. How can you run a sustainable business that way? Sorry, I had a bit of a rant there, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I noticed. That's all right. <laughs> we like rants. Rants are good. Yeah, I mean, I had a conversation with a client the other day who who like looks at their finances quarterly, and I was just like, yeah, I know why you've got cash flow issues if you're looking at your profit and loss every 90 days. That's just crazy. So just kind of coming back full circle, just like wrapping up, what do you wish you knew when you were running that agency before you started going to those seminars and reading those books? Mm. What are three things you wish you knew? I'll give you a specific number. The first one is about the goal of the business isn't to, to collect as many clients as you possibly can. The goal in business is to build sustainable profitability. And notice I didn't say to make money there, it's to build sustainable profitability. And I, I think if I paid more attention to that, I could have reverse engineered it back up into you know, gross profit and, and revenue and made the numbers work better for me back then. So I definitely would have paid more attention to profit back then rather than just, you know, making money. The second thing is if your gut tells you something's iffy about a prospective client, tune into that, listen to it. Don't just follow the crowd and sign clients for the sake of signing clients. Quite often you'd be better off. And I, I had the benefit of hindsight a number of times. We took on clients we shouldn't have done and had 
negative experiences with them or the client didn't have the best experience. And the reality is I probably just shouldn't have taken them on in the first place. So that would be the second thing. You Be in control of the no. I think I would probably summarise that that as. You know, don't just take orders, you be in control of the no and you'll get better quality clients at that point. The third thing would probably be around... It was like the light bulb went off when I learned about productizing services. So building products rather than just delivering time for money services, which I know is kind of linked to the pricing side of things, but it didn't just solve like pricing and understanding the value proposition. More so what it solved, it forced us to build systems and processes and assets to make those systems and processes work. Taking a branding process building seven steps around it, delivering it in a day, having a workbook or a manual so somebody else could deliver it on the day rather than it always being Robin doing it. And so the designer knew what was going on as well. Taking money, in, we were able to take money in advance. This is a product, it had seven features. It was delivered in a, in a day, it had a workbook. We'll take money in advance for it because we knew what the outcomes were going to be from it. So that productization piece was like absolutely like a big pivotal turning point in the agency. Yeah, I love that. Wow. I mean, we could do a whole podcast episode on that, right? I'm going to land this one here just because we've been talking for over an hour now. And I think we've we've covered a lot of stuff and I'd love to kind of maybe record another episode with you just about productization and how to do exactly what you just said, because I've seen that work for our clients like gangbusters and it's literally sometimes doubled their revenue and, and doubled their profit. So I know that would be a, a hugely valuable episode. And maybe we could park that for another time. Other than grabbing a copy of your book, which I recommend that everybody does, it's called Take Your Shot. Get it from Amazon if you can, because then um, you actually can leave a review and grab it. But I know, Rob, you also give away some of these books every month as well. Where can people connect with you? Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So the best place to connect with me is probably on LinkedIn. So you pop a link in the show notes, Matt, that's probably the easiest way to do that. But yeah, go and search for Robin Waite on LinkedIn and connect with me. Drop me messages. Like I know there's a lot of people who do things like this and then they send, you know, get messages, but they never reply. Unfortunately, I'm a bit fastidious about replying to people. So if you ask me a question, you're going to get an answer. And if you do go and drop me a message on LinkedIn and you love a gift, if you like a signed book, just go and ask ask me to send you a signed copy through LinkedIn. That's probably the best bet. And I'll happily sign it, pop it in an envelope and take it down to Pauline at the local post office because I take great pride in sending out copies of the book. And it's got a lot of, you know, the nuts of what we kind of spoke about in there in the book as well. Nice. Love it, man. Well, listen, thank you so much for jumping on this podcast, exploring some of these things. Thanks for being vulnerable and sharing your personal story and the journey of you building your agency. It's been a pleasure and I'm sure this won't be our last episode. Awesome. Thanks, Matt.